Welcome to Talking Kotlin. On this episode, I'm sitting down with Bartek Lipinski, talking everything about annotations and code generation. Hi, Bartek, and welcome to the show. Hi, Hadi. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. And uh, the reason that I'm having you on is because you wrote a really nice blog post a month ago or so, I can't remember, which was basically a step-by-step guide or, or not a step-by-step guide, but it was more like a walkthrough of all the different ways that you can do uh, annotation processing and the doors that are opened uh, with Kotlin, uh, and specifically with uh, extension functions, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, that, that's exactly what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, well, you know, why don't you come on the show and uh, we can talk about this a little bit because we haven't really actually done a show as such around annotation processing. Uh, and some people consider it, I don't know, I wouldn't say advanced, but I, I've, I, and I may be incorrect here, but I find that maybe some people beyond just annotating things on, on their classes because they're using Spring or some uh, dependency injection framework and stuff like that, they don't use much more beyond that, right? So I thought, well, you know, let's let's discover this area a little bit and let's step back and, and talk about all of the different things that that is possible, right? So could you give us a, a brief uh, background on, first of all, like uh, why you decided to dig into this area? Uh, sure. So it all really started a really while a while back when I actually was writing my first annotation processor. So it was months, months ago. Uh, I was stumbled. Uh, I stumbled upon this uh, this principle, this this limitation, uh, that really um, made me think about annotation processing in a completely different way, because I found out that annotation processors cannot really modify the existing code. They can only generate new code, and that was uh, something that I'd say even frustrated me a, a little bit at at the beginning. But when I um, when I found out that that they it's it's the limitation that we cannot like overcome that that's something that we cannot change i started uh, researching what other people were were doing to overcome this somehow and i figured out that what was really a problem was uh, that we needed a way to hand over the the generated code to the user to the developer uh, to the user of the library and uh, I, I started uh, looking up uh, different solutions for that, and I found out that there were really two major approaches for this. Um, and I, I had the, I named them somehow in my post in my article, but um, I will try to briefly um, describe them maybe. Before digging into the the general approaches, yep. why did you need this? Like, what is the use case scenario that? Uh, you would want to have your, you know, annotations generate slash modify code? Uh, if I remember correctly, the first thing that I, that I wanted to do was uh, back in the day when, the, when there was Parse uh, and it was officially uh, supported and uh, officially available um, publicly, I wanted to uh, have a better uh, way of interacting with parse objects. And I wanted to, the, the, the thought process I had was that I wanted to extend objects 
regular objects uh, with my annotation processor, which, which is like completely wrong and uh, completely infeasible. Just for those that are not familiar with Parse, uh, what, what, are, what are you referring to? Uh, it was like an, let's say, online um, backend database type of thing. So uh, you could upload data to it. You can you could download data to your app easily uh, from it. Just regular backend uh, type of thing. Right. Okay. Uh, and that that was the thing, but it really didn't matter because the the the, the really important thing was that uh, this is the principle that is very important, and you you really cannot change it. Uh, and uh, this has different consequences also on the fact that. Um, there are libraries that, uh, there are approaches that make uh, uh, not really that user-friendly libraries because of this principle. And th that's, that's where uh, may, I think that the, the, the one approach that I, that I noticed was uh, really um, suffering from this, from this thing. Uh, because I think that the prime example of the, of the problem, of the annotation processing problem, um, is the, the Dagger library. Uh, probably well known to mostly most Java Android and Android developers, the library, the, the dependency injection library previously from from Square, currently from Google. Uh, the, the, they had the, the same problem basically, and they um, because they wanted to give people the generated component, and they could not modify any classes. They had to generate new class. They had to generate the new class with the maybe slightly um, in, not really that uh, easy to find class name with the component name and prefixed by the dagger name. So basically what I mean that... Right, and, uh, and the problem with generating a new class is that essentially, uh, like let's take dagger or some other library, you wanted to essentially add some functionality to, to, the, to the user of the library uh, but the only way that you could do that is to add a new class, generate new code, which was adding new classes, which would then force the developer that is using this library to depend on these new classes and, and write code using these new classes as opposed to the current classes they had. Is that more or less uh, the understanding here? Yes, exactly that. That's why... That's why uh, libraries like Dagger have to depend on interfaces that can be um, implemented by the new classes that are generated from the annotation processors. Right, and and just for people that uh, aren't clear on how how this happens, so how does this code generation work? Uh, how do the annotations do it, and how does that kind of uh, link into the whole uh, compiler and and to the project? So compiler is the um, is something that works during the the compilation process basically. So it can easily find annotations that were added by the user to to the to the code, and based on those annotations, uh, the compiler can do all sorts of of things. Uh, one thing is it can generate classes. Um, and with the to with tools that are available right avail available right now, it's it's really easy with tools like Java Poet from Square or now Kotlin Poet. Uh, it's it's really easy. It's like writing just a just writing a single uh, method method call chain. Uh, 
so before before uh, before the main um, before the app is uh, packed assembled uh, we have like the rounds of compilation and in, in every round of compilation the compiler gets to uh, analyze the uh, the annotations that were added or that are already present in the in the code and based on that it can act and produce different things how does that actually fit in with the programming model like let's say that i have uh, a lot of people you know use for instance gradle so essentially what happens is that the I have some annotations and then I configure something in Gradle that is going to look into these new classes that are being generated. How does it all tie in together? Mm, well, that, that's very simple, actually. Uh, usually, um, libraries that depend on annotation processing should be split into two modules. Uh, one module should contain only annotations or maybe annotations with some uh, code that can be run within the, the, the user's code and should con should have like a second module, which is the compiler. What's important, uh, what's important is, uh, is that um, the annotations with maybe the library are uh, pro should probably be included within the code uh, of the user. And annotation and the compiler is something that is um, working not uh, like parallelly to the app. So it's not included in the app itself. So you can uh, use uh, every type of code, even I'm looking from Android perspective, you can include libraries that are that are heavy, that have uh, many uh, methods that you would not normally use in, in your app. So for example, I'm perfectly fine with using Guava in my annotation processing. Uh, and I'm not really happy when I if I have to use Guava in my app uh, apps. Uh, so basically, you are just adding two uh, dependency in your Gradle, one for annotation, one for uh, for the compiler, and it's as simple as just adding those two those two things. This leads to what we're saying, which is basically annotation processing that generates code that then gets linked in. Uh, during compile time so that the developer has access to it. And I believe that you said one of the issues also here is that there needs to be a first build for this to happen, right? Because otherwise, how is the ID going to be aware that, you know, like if I'm using some class that's generated code, I need to first build for, for the ID to be happy, right? Yes, that's basically the problem. That's basically, I think every single person that uh, have, have the, had the chance to use Dagger um, had the chance also to see this beautiful red message that the, let's say, Dagger app component cannot be found because that's the case. You need to build the code for the annotation processor to actually generate something and that's something you can the, that you can actually refer to in your code. And that's the that's the one problem with with the annotation processing uh, right now. Okay, so I'm not a user of Dagger, but let's say mm -hmm. that I'm using something that follows this thing. What is the exact workflow? Because let's say that I add an annotation and then I build, and that annotation on the first instance is going to generate some code, uh, which then on the second instance is now available. What happens from there on? Every time I want to, you know, maybe I add another 
annotation or I want access to another method that's going to be generated for me. It, it feels like every time I've got a build to get access to this new information, right? Over and over again. Yes, exactly that. So uh, the, the thing about uh, Dagger actually is that there's like this only this one uh, point of access to the library. So that's a bit easier. But if there was like a library that was producing multiple files, multiple classes that you had to refer to, and uh, that would make things even more difficult. But if you are, you if you if you have a, like a clean project, and you are adding this annotation to the to the project, and you want the, to refer the code, refer to the code that uh, should be generated from the library, you cannot not do it right away. You can you have to wait for the build to succeed. So basically, you're adding the annotation, and before you can you can start referring to it, you have to run the build. You have to build the code so so the so that the class becomes available for the user. Uh, so after you build the code, you can refer to it. You can use it in your code because IDE is doing its job very well uh, and it's analyzing the the build file, files as well. But if you clean your project, it it all go it all goes to the to the previous state. Uh, once again, you've got like the, the the errors with imports and you've got like the unresolved classes in your code. And they are un unresolved until you build the code. So it's not the best and most ideal workflow, right? And not at all. I think it's pretty not user friendly. I think it's uh, like not not that elegant. And um, and actually, I think a lot of libraries are using this this approach basically because uh, it's easy. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to uh, do any additional work. To make it um, to 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 just for the user to be able to use your library, uh, but you have to depend on documentation, because if let's say if I gave you Dagger, or any other library that is following this the same principle, if I gave you this sort of library, and you didn't know anything about it, you didn't have any documentation about it, you would have a difficult time figuring out how to use this library. It's uh, it's difficult to figure out that. Uh, after you add a component annotation uh, to your class, uh, there will be, after a successful compilation, there will be a class called your component name prefixed with the word dagger. That's something that it's not, not that ideal, I think. Uh, that's why I was uh, thinking about other solutions for that, and that that's why I was researching what other developers were doing with this sort of things. So essentially, you're saying that it's like I'm programming in JavaScript or any kind of dynamic language, so to speak, right? Because uh, I get no completion. The ID doesn't tell me uh, what it indicates that it's an error, uh, and I'm basically having to know that at some point this is going to be available, right? I'd say it might be even worse because uh, before successful compilation with a clean project, it uh, it actually says that it is an error, that the, the class is unresolved, and this this will become uh, available in, in compile time. We understand now that you know there is a need often to have uh, generated code, which is absolutely fine. And and you know the, one of the premises of or the premises one of the um, I would say uh, conventions that people generally, uh, not even conventions, one of the things that generally people agree on in regard to code generation and whether it's okay to use code generation is the idea that it's it's fine as long as you don't have to modify 
uh, the generated code, right? So that each time you rebuild from scratch, you get the same exact generated code and you don't have to modify it, then it's fine to use code generation. So we agree on that. And you wanted this, but the problem is that the workflow that you found was painful because of all of these errors, right? Yeah. Okay. But also, uh, there was a different solution for this pro for, for this problem, and it kind of uh, overcame the the fact that the generated classes can change every single build. And this is the second approach that I was describing. Right. So, do you want to go into detail on that one? Yes. Yes. So, um, the I think that the 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 first time I I spotted this, uh, I. I was actually analyzing the code from Butterknife from Jake Worthen, and I'd say I was pretty amazed because this this was just crowd groundbreaking for me because this solved the issue. There was some drawbacks from uh, of the of the implementation, but for me it it completely made the the the, the issue disappear. The issue of uh, not being able to refer, refer to a generated code, because um, what Butterknife does is that it introduces uh, a library, uh, a, a library that you normally include in your project. And this library uh, has some knowledge of the, uh, of, of the way compiler works. So has some knowledge on the way that the code, uh, that the generated code will look, what it will look like. Uh, basically it knows what will, will be the name pattern of the, of the generated classes and what will be the interface that those generated classes will implement. And having this knowledge, those two things, it can do something. Back then I thought it was pure magic because it, in runtime, this is important that it happens in runtime, but in runtime, Butterknife can uh, find the generated classes using the known pattern. So if it know, knows the, the pattern and also it knows uh, where the generated classes will be put. So uh, in analyzing the annotations for a particular class, um, a compiler creates classes in the same package, if I rem remember correctly. Uh, and the library is looking for those classes in the same package. But the important thing is that it looks, look, it's looking for those classes using reflection, Java reflection. And probably as most Java and Android developers know, uh, you have to be careful when using reflection because it, it has some drawbacks. And that's basically the other problem that, that I spotted, even though it solved the first problem, the, the problem from, from the Dagger library, because you could refer, reference, in a way, you could reference uh, the generated classes from your written code. And the code generation, the generated code could could change every single build. It doesn't matter because Butterknife was finding this code in runtime. Right, but how how are you referencing it if there was no static reference to it? Uh, you were referencing the library, so uh, you were referencing you were you were not referencing the the generated code directly, but you were referencing the library, and the library was returning you the interface that the generated class was. Uh, it was. Re returning you the generated classes in a form of the interface because the library knows that the generated classes will implement the, this particular interface so they the, the library can basically cast the generated class to the interface and everything should work fine so it you you don't you don't uh, you don't refer to the exact class 
uh, that is going to be generated. But the fact that the generated class will implement the interface, you can actually refer to the interface itself. I see. Okay. Uh, so this was the second approach, right? Yes. And uh, you weren't happy with this either? I, I was quite happy with this until I heard about the extension function functions, uh, the feature in Kotlin. Because when I heard that it uh, kind of mimics uh, the modification of already closed classes, I knew that it could be used for annotation processing. It, it was like completely, um, I, I, I knew it right away, that, that, that there was something there. And uh, when I thought about this some more, I actually thought that I can use the exact same approach Butterknife uses. So uh, knowing some, uh, some characteristics about compiler, uh, but instead of reflection, I can just swap it with the proper usage of extension functions in Kotlin. And that's basically what I did. Uh, the concept of what I did is super simple, if you think about it, because you essentially have, let's say, two uh, simplifying two, ext two extension functions. You've got one extension function that is shipped to the user in a form of a library, and it's sort of a stub implementation. So there's no uh, real behavior uh, that you would expect from this particular extension function. Uh, I was actually using in my in my like proof of concept libraries, I was actually just throwing an exception inside those those stub extension functions. And you've got another extension function that is generated on demand for the user uh, by an annotation processor, just like that. So the, the idea here is that uh, in a sense, the generated extension function should override the extension function from the library, the stub extension function. So uh, it should be chosen, the generated extension function should be chosen over the stub extension function from the library. And that's basically it. You, uh, the fact that you have the stub extension function, the uh, not really real extension function from the library, uh, is enough for you to fix the, 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 the issue that is in Dagger. Because you are, you have, you have this uh, entry point. You have this something to refer to, uh, even before the build completes. But it doesn't really matter that it does not refer to the real thing, as the, as long as it really refers to something. Yeah. So essentially, what you are uh, doing is that at compile time, your library is providing you with the actual extension functions that you can reference in the code and it's not going to give you any errors or, or uh, compiler errors or, or red warnings. And then at runtime, when you build this and, at, uh, and consequently at runtime, what's coming into effect is the actual generated extension function that your uh, annotation uh, library is, is, is creating, right? And, and that's the one that's going to be used in the application. Yes, but additionally, uh, the fact that you've got like this uh, this uh, extension function already in the in the library, not in the compiler, but in the library, uh, makes it easy to um, have something to refer to even before any compilation completes. So uh, so you don't have any warnings beforehand before compilation because you have something to refer to. 
Yeah, which and is just yeah, yeah, which is what I was saying that there's no red warning because you actually have that stop, yeah. which you're saying that in your case is essentially just throwing an exception, right? Yes, exactly which, that. Which at runtime will never happen because the yes. code, unless there's an issue with your uh, code generation, uh, which then you'll easily know that there's an issue with your code generation because it's thrown an exception. Exactly that. Okay. Basically, my my extension my exception says that there's something wrong with your code generation. That's it. Yeah. So that that's pretty cool. And uh, what are the usages of this? Like, uh, give me examples where I could use this uh, to. So in a way, I guess uh, it's in a strange way. It's kind of mimicking uh, what you would call uh, dynamic invocation, right? Because a lot of languages, like for example, in Ruby, this this was made popular in Ruby. Uh, I don't know if it was originally from Ruby, but it was definitely made popular from Ruby, which was the idea of method missing, which then came to C Sharp as well, where you would say that I have a dynamic method that I can call in my in my code. And, and in the case of C Sharp, being a static language, it would not give an error because you were saying that this method was dynamic. If you would not actually provide the implementation, which was essentially overriding, a, 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 sorry, implementing an interface, then what would happen is that at runtime, it would say to you, you know, exception, method implementation missing, uh, which was the, the idea of the method missing, right? So in a way, this is mimicking the same thing, right? Whereas on the Kotlin side, targeting the JVM, we don't have support yet for, for dynamic. What you're saying is that I can potentially add functionality, albeit it's not directly dynamic because I need to know the names of the functions um, from beforehand, right? But the implementation, yes, exactly. so to speak, is, is similar, right? In a yes, way. Yes, yes. Yeah. So that's, that's more or less exactly what you're saying. Yeah, so going back to, to what I was asking you, uh, and apologies for interruption, but where are areas where this is useful? Like, give me some scenarios where you're you're providing this via the, the the libraries uh the one scenario that i was uh, thinking about is basically replacing the reflection from the uh, from the annotation processing process so uh in the scenario like in the butter knife where where you are using reflection to refer to the generated code you can really swap the reflection by this this sort of uh of code generation in kotlin and it works perfectly fine and it uh, decreases the performance uh, drawbacks from using reflection and, and it's the size. Uh, yes and the size exactly uh, and it it makes everything much clearer as well because you uh, if you have the generated code already you can just click through the code and and that's not the case when you're thinking about using reflection there so as a part of this my of this post of mine i actually created two um, proof of concept libraries that were applying this concept of generating extension functions to both of those libraries that I was think, talking about. So it, it is applying this concept to, to both Dagger and Butterknife, and it's uh, simplifying, in my opinion at least, simplifying the, the usage of those both of those two libraries, especially Dagger, because it removes completely the need for uh, for figuring out uh, what's going to be the, the, the class, the generated class, fighting with uh, unresolved imports and unresolved classes. You can just call dagger.create, pass your interface, and everything works works correctly. 
Okay, as but as sometimes dagger works. Okay, but let's say that sometimes I want to use reflection to invoke a method uh, that I, you know, that I I do not know the the name has to be passed in a string, for instance. How would you? How would your approach resolve that scenario? Mm, I'm not sure if it can, because the the um, I was uh, using it in a way that I know the extension function name, uh, so I don't think it's applicable to to this sort of scenario where yeah. where you actually need to use this sort of reflection call. Yeah, and and I I, I kind of uh, assumed that, but I just wanted to make sure because it, it again mm -hmm. it goes back to the similarity between you know dynamic method invocation where. Uh, or you know method missing where in your case because you need to know the name of the the, the function names are defined prior right the extension function yes. names are defined prior yes yeah okay what other scenarios do you see this as being useful mm. i was not thinking about any more scenarios it was like this uh applying this to annotation processing was uh actually so let's say big for me that I, I thought it was uh, uh, just solving such a such a big uh, problem that that I, I wasn't really thinking if that can be applied to anything else uh, what I'm thinking right now is that uh, you can have all the other things uh, because how I made it work using um, specifying the target the, uh, the argument of the extension function uh, a bit more than it was specified in the stub implementation. But uh, recently I found out that, sh that there can be a different solution for this and that you can actually uh, have a general receiver type of the extension function and have, uh, the, uh, have the generated extension function uh, um, a bit more specific receiver type rather than having the argument type and that also makes it very interesting and very uh, very unusual i think um yep. that's yeah and do you have any of this uh on i mean you know we started because uh, we mentioned that you had written an, an extensive uh, blog post basically covering this uh d d this source code and the things that you've done is available i assume on uh, github somewhere for people yep. to take a look at right Yes, exactly that. There are two libraries in, uh, at my GitHub profile that you can look through. Um, the problem with those two is that um, when I was writing my my annotation processors for Java, um, I was uh, kind of used to uh, using something called compile testing, the library from Google, I think, uh, which basically lets you um, lets you treat your annotation processor as a black box and just pass it source file and look what's going to be the output of the annotation processor and i think that's like something that is still missing for for generating kotlin and uh, that's something that i think those libraries are also uh, missing a bit that's why i don't call them like uh, perfectly production-ready uh, libraries. I call them proof-of-concept libraries because they do not contain um, like the testing I would be proud of uh, for, for the, the, this sort of library. Yeah, oh, I think there's a lot of us that have written code that we wouldn't be proud of. So. 
<laughs> the code I'm proud of the code. I'm not proud of the testing part. So yeah. Well, at least you have tests, right? Because there are there there are many of us, uh, including myself, yours truly, that has thrown code out in the open without tests. And I'm not saying that I'm ashamed of it, but I am. I'm I'm saying that it's not right. I'm saying that I am ashamed of it. Uh, but hey. Yeah. You know, each That's can do what they can at that precise moment. Exactly. Um, so, cool. Well, it was uh, wonderful having you on and talking about annotation processing. And uh, thanks again for taking the time. Again, thank you for having me here.